The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm your host, Sarah Elkins, and Chief Storymaker at Elkins Consulting. I just want to remind you, listeners who are interviewing for jobs or podcasts or anything where you really want to nail the interview, the Get Hired Job Interview Storytelling course is really good for any time you need to share the right story at the right time. So visit elkinsconsulting.com for more information. Today's guest, Jenna Wilson, is such a treat for you. I know that by the end of this conversation, you are going to have so many takeaways. You're going to want to listen to this episode more than once. Jenna, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Sarah, for having me. What an honor and privilege to be here. Well, thank you. I, I'm so looking forward to hearing your stories. So let's let's just dive right in. So um, tell me something about you that most people don't know. Oh, great question. Um, I am in love with the Wild West. <laughs> You're in love with the Wild West. I am. I'm a Florida girl. I grew up near the water and I just fell in love with the mountains. I didn't know I was a mountain girl until I turned 40 and moved out West and fell in love with the mountains. And But I grew up watching Westerns with my dad and I really felt a soul calling to come out here. I know you're in Montana. I'm down in New Mexico Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just love hiking. I love horseback riding. I had a horse as a child too, but, oh, but yeah. Wow. So why do you think people don't know this about you? Oh, because I'm kind of a yogi and hippie and, you know, no, I don't really care for country music and <laughs> I don't know, like, but I'm really comfortable in boots and a hat and on the back of a horse. And yeah, I just... You know, I think it's it's part of my personality, right? That I really get I get to um now once I've embraced all my shadows, <laughs> I get to <laughs> let them out. And that's one of them is is kind of a Western girl. I love that. Well, first of all, I'm not a big country music fan myself. So yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate hearing that, especially because I live in Montana and that seems to be a more common thing is country music, every yeah. radio station. Um, and to me, it all starts to sound a lot alike. They have a yeah. lot of the similar phrasing and and even the same notes, a GCD, GCD. Yeah. Anyway, so beside that, I hear you, especially on this awakening and awareness of where your heart calls you. And I don't think I'm the only one that that speaks to, especially that it happens in our forties. So yes, I I completely understand this idea of finding this new aspect of yourself. That's probably been there all along, but that you're finally acknowledging and embracing in your forties. So um, in that context, here you are in the mountains, you were called to the mountains of of New Mexico, which for our listeners, mountains of New Mexico, even Albuquerque is about a mile high in altitude. So even though it feels like desert in a lot of it, the um, mountains of New Mexico are famous and stunningly beautiful. So in that context, tell me about something that you do, like the your, your income producing activities. Tell me a story of something that recently um, inspired you about your work. 
Hmm, well, I just wrapped a group retreat in San Diego um, where I worked with 34 women. Um, my husband and I lead these group intensives. We also do private work and small groups for men. I've been doing this work for 19 years, but what inspires me something recently? I mean, anytime I'm working with somebody who's really willing to get to root cause, my work isn't about top down. It's really about looking at, you know, I think Western medicine is so fixated on top down, like, you know, one of my teachers, Deepak Chopra, who I trained with and worked with, he would always say that Western medicine is really practicing quackery. And quackery is when you're addressing symptoms and not the root cause of what's wrong. I'm depressed, give them a pill, I'm anxious, you know, here's an anti-anxiety. So my work and what inspires me about what I'm doing is really supporting people more than traditionally than talk therapy to get to the root cause of what's going on, where it's held in the body. So at this latest retreat, you know, an inspiring story was a woman came who her son, she was from Washington state. He had um, 21 years old freak accident with his grandpa. They were chopping down trees. A tree fell on him and he died. And I normally don't work with people in real crisis because they're not coherent. You know, you must have someone who's really coherent, meaning they're out of stress response and they can really take in the information because I'm an emotional healing educator. So I am really teaching people tools and practices similar to what you do, Sarah, really practical, um, you know, interpretations of pretty deep teachings like shadow work and such. But this woman who came, she had about a year and a half of grief because grief is a process. But through going through the emotional healing system and all that we teach, she was able to really realize that the way she's going to heal is going to add to her son's memory that it that you know i think often when people lose someone they may think like oh you know if i'm happy it's negating the memory you know i'm i should be right. mourning every day and that's how she was feeling so she had a huge breakthrough and it was just beautiful you know you see these people when they come and they look so different when they leave mm. their morphology everything's different right the the just their posture alone is yes. noticeably different yeah, they have a twinkle in their eye. They, you know, I don't like to use the word hope because one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, Pema Chodron, always says, abandon all hope. Right. Hope, hope is a beggar. It, it's a grasping. And yes, I know biblically it says, oh, it's one of the, you know, you know, the greatest attributes. But when you really break it down and unpack it, you see that hope is an attachment to something. What if that attachment, what if you're hoping for something that's not in your highest good? Right. You don't want to be hoping for that. So um, she, you know, they don't leave with hope. They leave with confidence that they have tools now that they can apply to their life and create transformation and continue to create transformation. Right. One of my good friends um, quoted this and he doesn't remember where he heard it. So I have no idea where it came from, but he said, hope is not a strategy. And what I love about what you're saying is that you're giving them strategies, you're giving them tools 
not for hope for the future, but for intention in the future. Yes. You're not yes. you're not tied to an outcome. You're not investing in an outcome. You're investing in the process. Exactly. And intention is such a key word because it is a universal law. Our intentions have infinite organizing powers. So when we get very clear and intentional with this intelligent universe that we live in, and we put our intentions out for the future, what we desire, but with detachment, right? Because again, we recognize that it may or may not be in our highest good. That's why we have sayings like, be careful what you pray for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I, I definitely have heard that before. It's so fascinating to me because um, I think uh, a lot of the people who could benefit from your work are the ones that won't. You know, like I, I think about this a lot in in um, like my friend Heather Younger just published her third book, Fantastic: The Art of Active Listening. Mm. Um, it's such a good book, and it's. It just gives you a good framework for listening. I, I've always thought I was a pretty good active listener, but reading this book gives me more structure mm-hmm. for what that can look like. Again, bringing more intention to the act itself. Right. And we were talking through the title of this book about a year ago as she was working on it. And she was a bunch of us in our in, in our tight community through the No Longer Virtual Conference. A bunch of us were in a room talking about this title and there were lots of cool titles coming out of our mouths and things were really interesting. And at one point I said, well, that's all well and good, but that's so touchy feely. The the people who really need to read this aren't going to pick it up. And she said, her publisher that's been doing this for decades, that is very, very successful said, you write for the audience who will read it. Right. Don't, don't write for the people who aren't going to read it right for your audience. And then that takes on its own, let's say pulse so that when the right people are reading it, they will share it with the people who need to read it. And eventually it will catch on to the people who, who need to, to hear the messaging. So when you think about what you do, how can we, how can we combine that? I guess, I guess I'm thinking about the woman that you first mentioned that you usually don't work with people who are in crisis. So she must've been past that point of, I can't even think anymore. Right. She wasn't crying constantly. You know, there was certain, you know, things we're looking for when the pre-interview and our group and our group intensives, we don't do a lot of vetting. We do have staff members who check in and make sure these people are, you know, really ready for, for the intensive because it is an intensive, you know, we're doing a lot of hypnotherapy processes, I'm taking them back to childhood, to developmental trauma. Um, So they're unearthing a lot of false beliefs and narratives they created when they were four or five years old and, you know, bringing light to their shadows, doing mirror work. It's confrontational for a lot of people. So it's, you know, it can be quite frightening. And you're right. The average person, I mean, let's face it, you know, there's more people walking around on the planet that are young and baby souls. They're not mature old souls. They're not interested in, you know, any, why am I here? What is the purpose to all this? You know, what legacy do I want to leave? You know, they're, they're, you know, most of them in their, in their, you know, defense are trying to put food on the table and a roof over their head. When you start walking down a really deep spiritual path of growth and and evolution, 
you've got to have, it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have to have all your cares pretty much taken care of, right? To really go on a journey, um, a deeper journey, I feel. So, you know, and I think most people, you know, it's like free will. I mean, yeah, I think our creator gave us free will, but most people don't have it. Why? Because they live in the past. The past Mm -hmm. is the known, right? The past is the prison, the familiar, familiar, right? So that is the conditioning. That is all those automatic reactionary responses based on narratives that may or may not be true. Probably most of them aren't true. I mean, we're just starting to realize now with research, half of our memories is fabricated. It's not even true. So, you know, we, we really have to, I think to be a conscious human on this planet today, we can't just because we're having a thought, believe it. We need to unpack our own thinking and mechanisms. And the only way to do that I found is through meditation is Mm -hmm. through really increasing your emotional intelligence so that you have the ability to be objective because we're very subjective, right? It's, it's, you know, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Mm-hmm. And it's a reflection of our consciousness. So, um, you know, and everybody's in a different state of consciousness. It's so fascinating that you brought this up about your friend's book. I wrote it down, by the way. I definitely mm-hmm. want to read that. Um, I think all of our teachers, we have a teacher training. That would be great info for them, too. You know, when they're working with clients, holding space, active listening. And I know in my training, and probably you can relate to this, we had to learn what's being said what's not being said, what needs to be said. So we're Mm -hmm. listening at so many different levels when we're holding space with a client and especially, especially working with people, which is really my specialty that have went through trauma. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that specialty, what brought you to that point? What was the, the, I, I, I don't believe in light bulb moments like that all of a sudden a light comes on i believe in a dimmer switch and there are incidents all along the way as that switch is turning up more and more and then there is a point usually or a series of points where the light starts to get really bright so can you think of one of those instances yeah so it's in my book um wise little one i mean that's really the story and that was the intent of writing the book was to share what put me on this path i've been doing this work now this is my 19th year and um you know i i was 12 years old i mean it starts with the prologue in the book where i had an out-of-body experience and i was awakened spiritually speaking it was a mystical experience it was really a near-death experience if you study anything about ndes Um, often the person who has a near-death experience describes something similar to what happened to me. So as a child, I grew up in adverse um, childhood experiences. I scored 10 out of 10. So I had a very, very turbulent childhood. Um, So uh, dad was beating mom. This was very common. Prior to this event that I'm about to share with you, that was the light bulb moment or the big epiphany that woke me up. Uh, I, my, I had had a gun placed to my head, a shotgun by my mother. Um, she had been sent in and out of mental institutions. She had mental illness. 
she was uh, diagnosed uh, back then. It was bipolar and she had borderline personality disorder and she, or manic depressive is what they called it back then. And she was um, clinically depressed. She had lost her father when she was young. And, you know, in the story, the book is really about how these false beliefs get formed. So I share my own, my mother's, my father's, mine, you know, every event that happened that formed me. So now I'm 12 years old. I've experienced enough. I'm definitely would have been diagnosed with CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, because I was continually every day, similar Mm -hmm. to like a war zone children who grow up in war. Um, So I leave our trailer, run out into the grass in the middle of the, you know, evening, and I'm praying to God to save me because I'm scared. Children, when they see their parents fight domestic violence, these people brought them into the world, you know? So if they're trying to kill each other, then they're going to kill us too, you know? I mean, you think Mm -hmm. it's survival, So I am praying. And the next thing I know, I feel this peace come over me, like, you know, kind of biblically peace that passes all understanding. It was just like, whoa, I went from terror to complete like peace. And then when I realized it, I kind of looked around and I realized I could see my body down below and I could hear my dad screaming and my mom and but I looked around and it was like I was in the cosmos. I was like connected to star nebulas and, you know, and everything was just so peaceful. And I asked the question internally, what's happening? And I was told, those are not your parents. I am. And that is not your life. This is. And then, boom, I was back in my body. And it was, as you can imagine, for a 12 year old, it was so life changing that. It marked pre and post of my life, right? It was like before that out-of-body experience and after. And after I gained what I called the inner dragon slayer, I began to get my voice and stand up to the adults around me and call them out on their BS. I began to talk about the proverbial elephant in the living room. I was the, the truth slayer. I was the you know, disruptor in the family. I was a cycle breaker in the making. I was like, Mm -hmm. you guys don't have this figured out. And I know the truth of reality that this isn't the real reality, but I'm here for a purpose. And I got very clear about that and very disciplined, got through high school, which was very hard. Listen, I had, sure, I wore, you know, the same outfit repeatedly. We were poor. I had really bad crooked teeth. I was bullied. I mean, I talk about all of this in the book, but I, I, I knew that I was beyond all that. I wasn't trailer trash Jana. I was this divine soul that was here for a reason. And that set me on a course. So by the time I go away to, to college, the first of my family to ever go to school, to have a, a degree, the first of my family to even finish high school, my mom, my dad, or my brother, my brother got his GED. So it was a big deal. So I leave, I go to Miami, I'm going to school, and then I'm still interested. I I have a voracious thirst for truth. And, And of course, because that was my North Star, that's where I was headed. Everything, you know, the universe kept providing a path, a mentor, someone would show up, 
you know, but I started early. I'm 57 years old. So at 20, you know, that's 37 years ago. I, I was really clear and I thought I was going to be a psychologist. I thought I'd go a traditional clinician. I, I hated school. I hated math. That wasn't my path. And thankfully in the nineties, when life coaching was starting, that was where I set my course in that direction with integrative coaching with the Ford Institute with Debbie Ford and Jungian shadow work. And then that just kind of, you know, led me down the path that made me the teacher of who I am today. So tell me about the first time. I'm sure this is a vivid memory for you. It just popped into my head. The first time you walked away from a client work that you, you were like, holy shit, that was, I, I did that. That was so powerful. Well, I mean, my work predominantly focuses on inner child. And so the inner child is our feeling self. And so, you know, I've worked in 19 years of my career and working on staff with the Chopra Center and with the Ford Institute, I've worked with more people than I can remember. So I, and that's not tooting my horn. It's just kind of, and the work I do is so deep that I really have to leave the memory of a client behind. I can't hold that, right? Because a lot of it is extreme trauma. So it's too much for me to hold. I have to have really strong practices myself to take care of myself and heal myself because I'm an empath and I really care about people and I want for them to connect with their inner child and to make that connection and to see themselves as the innocent, deserving, lovable, you know, child that they really still are as an adult. They've just lost sight of it. So, you know, I'm a pretty tough teacher. If you read any of my testimonials on the website, you know, people will say that, but I, I firmly believe for my own process, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. So I am never afraid to step. I don't step over anything in the space, right? I talk about everything. And if I have a client who's withdrawing and not able to do that, creating safety is important, right? It's the most important thing. But, you know, some people, you know, still can't make it. So, yeah, I've certainly sent people packing. I mean, we do residential retreats. I, you know, this doesn't work and, you know, I've and moved. But now I'm I, that rarely happens anymore. You know, I and I and, and I have to be detached in group retreats. You know, you give so much of you know, and I, and I've been doing it so long, it's like stream of consciousness, right? So I'm just pouring out all of this knowledge, trusting that who has ears to hear will hear. And then the rest I've got to let go. And that's my work. And it's not easy, Sarah. I mean, I, cause there is an attachment. I want them to get it, you know, and maybe that's my ego. Maybe that's my ego saying, oh, it makes me a better teacher. If they come to me and say how life-changing it was, that happens every time. But if I get one person who didn't like me or didn't get it or, you know, I, I'm human. It bothers me. Right. It's like that Rumi poem, you know, admit it. Every person you meet, you secretly say, love me. In the end, we only want to love ourselves, but we it's you know, it's a journey. It's not a destination. Right. And loving and accepting ourselves is a lifelong journey, especially when we're in the role as a teacher, because I've been with so many teachers that presented themselves as arriving 
And I got close to them and I went, wow, they really haven't arrived. They've still got a lot of work to do. Isn't that funny? Yes. And it doesn't matter what the credentials are. No, that's I'm finding that more and more. um, I've been helping people with hiring processes and looking at what kind of strengths you're looking for to fill gaps on your team and that kind of thing. And one of the things that I've been working with is um, the Lou Adler's uh, framework for hiring, which is rewriting the job description. So you basically remove the laundry list of credentials that you're looking for and this mm-hmm. much experience. And you start looking for the actual behaviors and, and activities that they can do and that they're expected to be able to do and that they're expected to contribute in the first 30 days, the first 60 days, the first year. Um, what have you done that looks similar to this? Because that will be a better indication of your success in this role than whether you have the right credential. Right. So I was thinking I had a lot of teachers in college that had PhDs that were crappy teachers where their graduate teaching assistants were much better at actually teaching concepts, even if they didn't have the credential. So when you think about that um, and where does that take your, your story when it comes to understanding that need for continual growth and seeing others that, Maybe maybe they don't actually think they're there, but they give the impression that they think they're there. Well, I think it's important to come from a place of authenticity. Um, one time I was at Esalen, uh, which is a renowned retreat center in California and Big Sur. And in the teacher's lounge, there was a sign and it said, be careful, careful. If you go slaying dragons, you don't become one yourself. Ooh. And yeah. And I, you know, I really took that to heart. I thought, okay, how can I show up on a stage or, or you know, face-to-face, personal with a client and really without exploiting myself, without making it about me, because in, in the type of work I do, it is very therapeutic. It's educational, but there is a therapeutic process to it, right? And I'm not a traditional therapist. So I'm working with modalities outside that framework, but I still want to honor that there are certain ways to, you know, progress with a client without sharing too much of myself, making sure it's pertinent and relevant for the client to understand. But I think it's one of the greatest compliments that clients and students will give me is you're down to earth. And that's what Mm -hmm. I shared in my book. I didn't hold anything back. I shared about my affair that I had on my ex-husband. I shared about being raped. I shared, you know, all the abuse from childhood. I shared, um, you know, things that it took courage. And yes, I've healed it. But, you know, it wasn't an easy thing to live that wide open and that transparent. Mm -hmm. But I feel like when we do, there's another Rumi poem. He talks about this open secret. We go through life and we meet someone. How are you doing? Oh, great. How are the kids? Great. How's the new job? Great, 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 great. And we leave these interactions. They're innocent. They're benign. But we didn't really connect on a deeper human level. We left feeling like, why do they have all all together? And I'm over here a mess. You know, it's the social media. We only put the nicest stuff. We need more humans doing deeper work that can be solely authentic to say, when somebody says, how are you doing? I'm struggling today. I don't need to get into the gory details, 
but say a prayer for me. Or, you know, like, what, why do we have to lie and hide our deeper hunger, our deeper neurosis, our deeper, you know, yearning that makes us more separate. And I think that's what's happening in the world today. Of course, even with social media and everything with the internet is there's so many people having relationships with people that they've never even met through the internet, right? Like we need more community and connection. Mm-hmm. And that happens through, I think, transparency to answer your question. I would agree with that. One of the things that just popped into my head is when people aren't in alignment online with what they do in person. You know, they 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 say all this stuff online, but then face to face, they're not at all the same person. <laughs> I'm I'm always surprised by that. I don't know how that that's a thing, but but it's definitely a thing. And it my is. first my first thought was people who talk about being kind and you know they spew all this stuff about kindness and put the all those memes up and then you see them at the Starbucks really being rude or dismissive or being on the phone while they're trying to talk to somebody who's serving them. And it's just like, oh, that just doesn't seem in alignment to me. But remember we're wabi sabi. So wabi sabi, that yes. Japanese term that means perfectly imperfect. So you know, we're messy. We're all bozos on a bus, as Wavy Gravy, the MC of of Woodstock would say. You know, we're, we, you know, no matter how cool and how nice our clothes are and car is, listen, we're all a mess. It is hard being human. It is a difficult experience. And that's why, you know, my husband's a physician and he is really interested in physician well-being because they're very you know, their their, um, suicide rates high, their depression. I mean, they, they struggle Mm -hmm. and, and then they struggle to admit it. Right. Because they're the healer to have the answers. Right. Right. And so his, you know, focus and niche is really in physician well-being and in doing so, he says the reason why they struggle is they lack spiritual practice. So Mm -hmm. this emotional healing system that certainly I put together, I didn't create, it comes from 6,000 year old teachings from India that I learned with Deepak. It, you know, it's Jungian psychology, which is also based a lot on um, the Vedic teachings, but, and yogic teachings. And, you know, there's, it's nothing new. I don't believe any, it's me putting my spin and my unique, you know, look upon what is the most important practical tools that someone could develop emotional intelligence every day if they do it with discipline, which is, let's face it, a lot of people, you know, don't exercise a lot of discipline <laughs> and, <laughs> and steadfastness, consistency, not giving up, right? And you just keep doing it and you keep doing it. And that's what I feel like I show in Wise Little One is that I had a lot of peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and everybody listening, they have the same thing, right? We have times where we're really accelerating and growing. And but the key is we have to keep fundamental practices in place. Otherwise, when we go into those valleys, we're going to go deeper, right? And get off track because we don't keep steadfast with the really the strategies and skills and things we need to be doing on a daily basis to keep ourselves, you know, in a balance, a place of balance. And um, most of the people that I talk to, I would say 99% of the people that I talk to say that their relationships are the most important thing to them. And if that's the case, and you aren't doing this inner work, 
you aren't helping anybody if you if you aren't doing the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the, so I came up with six ways to love yourself. And I teach students this. Um, because you know, self-love is kind of like this thing of like, you know, oh, I go to the spa or you know, get a pedicure or manicure or it's so much more, right? It's emotional. Let's like, you know, the love languages, right? Words of affirmation, acts of service. Mm-hmm. Like, think about like what is your love language and give it to yourself. But emotional, how are you speaking to yourself? Are you honoring your emotions, aka your inner child? That mm-hmm. is the emotional self. Why do we relate with the inner child as the emotional self? Because in those developmental years, those first seven years, Children are all emotion. They don't have rational intellect to understand why mom's screaming at them because she's stressed and can't pay the bills. Like they personalize everything, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is emotional. So emotionally loving yourself, listening, you know, honoring your feelings physically, you know, eating well, exercising, moving your body. And there's this, you know, this is kind of a little controversial about what I'm about to say, but there's this idea that. You know, I can weigh 300 pounds and I love myself. I, I don't agree with that. I know that people use food as an addiction to bypass emotion. And so when we're not moving our body and honoring our body, this one miraculous machine that we get for maybe 75, 85 years, like in taking care of it, um, that's not loving. It's unloving. And um, relationships, being in relationships that mirror the love that you give to yourself, as you said, like if I'm in, you know, if someone called me early in my career, I remember this lady called me and she said, you know, I'm working all the time. I'm 63 years old. My husband's 78. So she was married to an older man. He's retired. My mom's in her nineties and I'm taking care of everybody and I'm stressed. And I said, okay, my feedback for you, I was kind of really blunt back then. <laughs> is, <laughs> some, that's sometimes the only way somebody's going to hear you. But yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, I said, um, oh, I said, so you need to embrace your irresponsible. And she's like, what? Did you not hear anything I said? I'm taking so much responsibility. I'm taking care of everybody. And I said, exactly. You need to embrace irresponsibility. You're irresponsible. Now, she wasn't over her elderly mother and her husband was fine. He didn't. He needed to contribute more. She needed to have boundaries. Once she really had a negative relationship with being irresponsible. I mean, it's not like we grow up and go, oh, let's grow up and be irresponsible, right? (laughs) But irresponsible, we are absolutely 100% irresponsible over everyone around us. Like, except our children, maybe, right? Or somebody who's handicapped that we're taking care of. We are helpless over them. We can't control other people. And so, you know, shadow work, the work that I teach with, that is, it's so life-changing, right? Because it it's really looking at things from a different perspective of how you project onto others things that you can't see in yourself. And so in relationship, in the mirror of relationship, if I'm with somebody who's verbally abusing me, what do I know about myself? I'm verbally abusing myself. Or I wouldn't be in a relationship with somebody verbally abusing me, Right. right. If somebody's emotionally disconnected from me in my relationship and I'm complaining, the first thing I would say as a coach to them, where are you emotionally disconnected and unavailable to yourself? 
You're not listening to yourself. You're not honoring yourself. You're not advocating for yourself. You're not speaking up. You're not setting boundaries. Somewhere you were emotionally disconnected from AKA the inner child, your feeling self. And so this person's mirroring to you. They're not available either. Hmm. Like attracts like, right? So the five things. Yes, there's six. So emotion. Thank you for bringing me back. Emotional, Mm -hmm. physical, um, spiritual. What's your spiritual language, love language? Like, are you meditating daily? Are you spending time in nature? Do you have a prayer practice? Do you have devotional practices? What are you doing to connect beyond the material world? Essentially, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be religious, right? I'm not religious. Just what is your spiritual connection? Then financially, listen, children do not thrive in environments where they're worried, you know, there's not enough. Believe me, I know I grew up in that. So we need parents. We need to be that parent for ourselves where we're saving, we're good stewards over our finances. Um, Organizationally, you know, children also thrive in organized environments. What does they say? You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Get in the car of somebody with, you know, crap all in their car. You know a lot about them if it's not clean and, you know, kept, you know. So, so it's, you know, physically, emotionally, um, spiritually, organizationally, financially, relationships. Mm. Those are mm-hmm. the ways. And if you ask yourself every day, I tell students, put them on a wall and ask yourself every day, how am I going to love myself today emotionally? I'll do a tiny habit. You know that book, Tiny Habits? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brush my teeth, right? Brushing my teeth. Hi, Jana. You're a good person. You know, you're doing a great job. I really love what you're doing with your clients. You're, you know, I'm so proud to be you and, you know, creep up the great work, giving myself that proverbial pat on the back, right? That's, I attach it to Mm -hmm. brushing my teeth. That's my emotionally, you know, connecting with little Jana and giving her that you're a good girl. I could even see um, a practice if that's too awkward, a practice of acknowledging a win, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to saying, I'm a good girl saying, Yesterday, when I did not take the bait, when my teenager tried to get me into a fight, I'm really proud of myself. Yeah. That was that was hard. And I did that. I did a hard yeah. thing and I'm proud of myself. Yeah, And really looking at yourself like you're a badass. You rock. Yeah. You look go, at what girl. you just did. Like, yeah. And I know the day before you weren't successful with that, but look what you did yesterday. And, yeah. and maybe tomorrow you'll fall back a little, but the next day you'll be able to handle it again. And yeah. I'm always looking for evidence through story of those things. So I think all six of those, you could start maybe, you know, a lot of people, there, a lot of people benefit from gratitude journals. They're such mm-hmm. an amazing tool to help people oh, yeah. start to see the, the good in their lives. And of course, you know, neurolo- neurologically, once you start looking for them, your brain starts to see them even before you start looking for them. So you're generally more satisfied person when you keep a, a gratitude journal. But I would even say that in order to identify those six habits in your life and make sure you're doing them every day would be to keep a satisfaction journal, which is homework I give to StrengthsFinder clients when I'm working with them. And that means finding the evidence every day of two things that fed one of those six or two of those six things. Mm, Maybe you have more. No, I love that. Maybe you're feeding your... um, 
your spiritual well-being by saying, oh, I'm so satisfied. I I took a 10-minute walk today. I wasn't going to do it. I didn't really have time, but I made myself do it. And not only did that satisfy my spiritual feeding, but it also satisfied my moving my body feeding because yeah. I was out in nature for 10 minutes. And maybe tomorrow I can do 15. Exactly. You know, the, look for the evidence so that you can see that you are already feeding it. Because if you don't look for that, you end up seeing all the negative instead. Because that is outsized for the amount of space that it takes up in our brain. Do, do I, you hear, I don't know if yeah. I made that clear, but. Yeah. And in talking about gratitude too, it's, you know, gratitude holds an emotional signature in our body. When we're feeling it, something's happened, right? Because the brain doesn't know the difference between something that's happened or something we're imagining. So if I'm feeling grateful for something before it's happened, then I'm using the power and the energy of that high frequency feeling of gratitude to show my mind something that I want to see. So, you know, affirmations are kind of old technology. It's like I affirm something in present tense that I desire that maybe I'm not experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. So, but if I shift that to a statement of gratitude, when I think about being financially debt-free, say, if I say an affirmation, I am debt-free, then and I'm not, then there's a part of me that's like BS, right? Mm -hmm. I offer up resistance. But as soon as I say, when I think, I feel so grateful when I think about being financially free and, and having the freedom to travel and do all the things I want and money not being an issue and being in abundance, you know, I feel so much gratitude. When I take myself to that future potential with that emotion, then that's when things start to open up what Carl Jung called synchronicity. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, synchronicity is meaningful coincidences begin. Yes. Yes. I love that you just brought this in because we talked right before I hit record. I said something about the kind of coaching I do. It's very practical. I don't consider myself really uh, touchy feely woo woo. And yet what you're saying isn't magic, right? Jana, it is intentionality. It is, mm -hmm. if I'm grateful for something that I will have in the future, like um, I am grateful that tomorrow I'm going to be feeling better, that this cold is going to be incrementally improved. Um, I'm not just setting some random intention. This means that most likely my brain and heart are going to combine to drink the water that I need to drink to flush the system, to take my multivitamins, to get some sleep, to do the things I have to do. Because I've set myself up exactly. to do those things by having this idea in mind of what I'll be grateful for in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you and I both had this cold. And <laughs> and what I like to use, it's a Joe Dispenza term, Dr. Joe, where he says the intelligence that created my body is healing it. Yes. Like I, I'm affirming that like it, it's happening right now. And so, yeah, I'm grateful that. And, and every day that I've said that, I mean, I, my husband being a physician, he's like, you'll have this until Friday, the body aches will be gone by this day. And I've cut <laughs> all his estimates off by like two or three days. I'm like, see, I know how to heal myself. Yes. <laughs> intentional. Yeah, exactly. Drinking the water and, and eating properly and having your hot tea and doing all the right things. 
And you may do that anyway, but when you have that intention of, oh, tomorrow I'm going to feel a little bit better and the day after that, I'm going to feel even better. Just knowing that, I think it sets that the habits in motion. And we're the creator of this life. Are you familiar with the Cartman drama triangle? No. Yeah. So Cartman was a, um, I think he was a physician. I think he did this in the fifties. It's K-A-R-P-M-A-N. You'd be really interested in this, Um, especially working with groups. Cartman um, said, you know, the drama triangle, there's a victim, the old model of unconscious relationship. There's a victim, there's a persecutor, and there's a rescuer. So the victim, of course, goes to the rescuer, which in codependency would be the caretaker. The victim will be the taker. And they say, oh, this person did this to me. And then that's the persecutor, right? In a conscious relationship, the victim becomes a creator. The, the, the rescuer becomes the coach. So when they come to them, they say, oh, and then the persecutor becomes the challenger. Oh, this person is challenging you to up level, to look at something different. We can't solve a problem at the level of consciousness it was created, Einstein said. So let's look at this. Like let's, everything's happening for us, not to us. There's a lesson here, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's one of the biggest probably ahas or takeaways that clients have is that you are in earth school and we are here to learn and we are here to learn lessons. And yes, things are going to come at us. But if we view ourselves from the lens of, I am the creator of my experience, I always say, I'm the leading lady of my movie. Mm-hmm. This is my movie, right? And so who gets to be a part of the main roles of my movie? How am I going to orchestrate this movie? But everything that's coming is happening for me to grow and to evolve because that's what we're here to do. Continue to evolve and evolve. I love that meme. You've probably seen it before where it says, um, allow if 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 you knew me a year ago, allow me to introduce myself because my growth game is strong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And part of me, I, I like the meme because it acknowledges something about ourselves um, when we want to do that, when we have that intent. And the other part of me wants to tell people, don't tell people you've evolved. Show them if if yeah. if you have to tell people, oh, this is you know this is the new me. You're probably not doing it right. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> true. So It'll funny. show, right? It's it like writing show. a book. They yes. kept saying to me, the development auditor, when I would send her my writing, she would say, um, "Show me, Jana. Don't tell me. Show me." So I would, you know, because the book reads like a novel. So I have to show mm-hmm. the reader these. I have to put you in the experience. And I think I do it well. Sometimes, you know, this is my first book and I think I did a pretty good job um, at doing that. But yeah, it is difficult. You're right to show and not tell. Mm-hmm. And that's where the stories come in. That's why your narrative is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Jenna, this has been such a treat. Um, oh, it was kind of a wild card for me. I didn't know what to expect. I read the part of your book, but I didn't have a chance to read the whole thing. And I can't wait to get back to it. Um, oh, it was already dropped. I was already um, feeling like I wanted to read it. And now knowing you and having this warmth and the experience of having this conversation where your, your energy just flows 
through the screen, this oh, love for thank people. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I really appreciate you taking your time to, to chat with me. Um, yeah. Last thing, is there anything you would want our audience to know as kind of a final thought? Well, just about the book, it'll be released on my grandson's birthday, July 12th. Um, it'll be on all platforms. And if people are interested, you know, in my work or anything I'm doing, then go to janawilson.com or you can go to emotional healing retreats. We have a, a retreat coming up in September in Florida. It's a five day retreat. And we would love to have, you know, any listeners, if you're ready to do a deep dive into your psyche and explore. Mm-hmm. Um, and come out, you know, the other side, it's always, you know, would love to have more people at the group retreat. So, and where in Florida is that it's on Hutchison Island, which is South Florida. You fly into Palm beach international. It's about an hour from the airport. It's on a little Island, very, um, uninhabited, you know, quiet and at a beautiful resort. I've been doing that there for 14 years. Oh, wow. yeah, it's a great location. Awesome. People love it. Clients love it. So good to know. Jenna, thank you so much. Listeners, there will be links to all of what Jenna just talked about in the um, show notes associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com. Listeners, it's your turn now. What steps are you going to take to make sure you're feeding those six things that we talked about? particularly the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual well-being. What can you do today to acknowledge something about yourself that you can love? I'm looking forward to seeing your comments in the comment section on Facebook, Instagram, and here on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile. If you just smile